The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. Good morning, Crosspoint. My name is Rob Fraser. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're delighted to have you here this morning. A little bit about myself is that I grew up uh, in a very musical family, well, at least half. My dad's pretty musical. Uh, he taught music appreciation in the public schools for many, many years. And he himself had uh, been a part of music for as long as I can remember, as long as he can remember. He played different instruments. He marched in a rose parade many, many decades ago. Um, he was very involved in music at his church. He played the piano. Uh, he sang in different choirs. He and my mom inherited uh, different musical instruments, including a pipe organ from my great aunt. Uh, so music was a huge part uh, of his life. And for my sister and I, that meant that we had no choice. We had to learn how to play an instrument, right? So I had to learn how to play piano. My sister had to learn how to play piano. She also played the saxophone in middle school. So that was a particularly painful time. Um, and so music became a big part of my life as I just kind of followed him around and was involved in that. And then it was probably high school time when after playing piano for a while, I saw my friends, they were playing guitar and they were in bands and there were girls that would follow the bands. I'm like, this piano thing is overrated. Enough of that. So, and then as a 16 year old, I can still remember uh, being at my cousin's house in LA and my aunt says, I want to buy you tickets to go see you two tonight. And just thrilled over the moon, had never really seen a concert before, and got to the L.A. Sports Arena, which is one of the worst venues um, <laughs> that I can think of, but saw this band, and the lights go out, and the crowd goes wild, and then the, the bass and the guitar come, and just started screaming, you know, as a 16-year-old, just super excited, and my life was forever changed. Music is something that for me, and I'm not if, sure if it's the case for you, that can really evoke memories. You can go back 20, 30 years in an instant if you hear just a couple notes from a song. And in a special way, I think that music really starts to adhere and intertwine uh, with multiple senses. Uh, for example, I can go back many, many decades and still smell the gymnasium of our high school after a football game, and they sent everybody straight to the gym for a dance. I can still smell it and see it. Great memories. Uh, I can go and think of one of the many road trips that we took um, as kids, and my cousins passed down to us in the 80s these really cool new crazy things called Sony Walkman. Right? And pretty soon, life was really good. I didn't have to talk to my sister anymore in the back seat. And I can see still the landscape of, of like the Southwest as we, draw, as we drove across, seeing these beautiful um, landscapes and hear the sound of my favorite music. And then after a couple hours, as the batteries start to fail, the songs slow down, if, if you yourself remember this. I can still taste the salt from the tears when I listen to our song after I got dumped <laughs> time and time again. 
And I can still feel the fabric of the wedding dress marching down the aisle after we were married as Jana jumped into my arms listening to Indiana Jones theme from the Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Music really does intertwine uh, with our senses, and we can go back. Such power that music has. And we haven't started talking about the lyrics yet, right? I mean, lyrics can be so complex in songs, and it can reveal a range of emotions. For example, here's something that may be particularly meaningful to you. It goes like this. I got a feeling that tonight is going to be a good night. (laughs) That tonight is going to be a good night. That tonight is going to be a good, good night. (laughs) Woo-hoo. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, it's a little emotional, hold on, (laughs) Friday, Saturday, Saturday, and Sunday. I guess they ran out of days. Okay, exhibit B, prop me up besides the jukebox if I die. Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. Fill my boots up with sand Put a stiff drink in my hand. Prop me up beside the jukebox if I die. That song was actually played at a memorial service that I did once. (laughs) (laughs) Now, lyrics can be much worse than that, right? Some of the garbage that these kids are listening to today does not have near the sophistication of the garbage I used to listen to. Okay, so sometimes these lyrics and the music can have significant depth. Music has been a way that people have spoken to God and of God for millennia. Think of the Old Testament. Think of Psalms. King David, the warrior, was also a songwriter, a musician. Psalm 108. My heart is confident in you, O God. No wonder I can sing your praises with all my heart. Wake up, lyre and harp. I will wake the dawn with my song. Think about all the cathedrals that were built in Europe hundreds and hundreds of years ago and the way that the acoustics enhance voices spoken and choirs sung. I think about the 1600s, 1700s, Johann Sebastian Bach and all the music that he wrote in his love of God. For Christians, especially coming up two weeks from today, we're about to celebrate the most critical event of our year, where the balance between all of history and all of of eternity balances on this one fulcrum, on this one day. And one of the ways that the church for years and years has tried to express their thoughts to God is through music. So much time, so much energy is spent writing these songs and so much gusto with which we sing to our God. And we try to match the magnitude of the season of of Easter with our words, with our voices. So who is this God that we sing to? For the next three weekends, we're going to be celebrating Easter. We're going to be looking forward to Easter Sunday, the resurrection, through the vehicle of three specific worship songs. 
And we're going to take apart these songs and dig into the lyrics. And we're going to find some of the theology of these songwriters. And we're going to see a lot of scripture reflected in their songs. The song that we're looking to this week is a song called Reckless Love. Written by Corey Asbury, Caleb Culver, and Ran Jackson. The first stanza of this song includes the line, Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. The songwriter is trying to indicate that God is our creator who has known us before we existed. Genesis 1. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Psalm 139. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. God is our creator and he gives us every breath. Psalm 3, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. The songwriters and the psalmists are trying to tell us that God is not only our creator, that we have been given life with him and we are still given life every breath that we have. Now, many people believe Christianity is not alone in believing that there is a God or there is a creator, that there is an intelligent being. But what of this God? What is his character? What is his personality? The chorus of the song continues, overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. So the claim is made that this God is a God of love, that God loves us, telling us that you and I are more than a laboratory experiment, that there is more than this transactional functionality between our creator and us. I'm going to say a few different words that are synonyms, and you're going to pick up on the subtlety very quickly, even though these, these words sound very similar, okay? If I was to say the word mother and mom, is there a difference? Father and dad, acquaintance, friend, spouse, lover. The subtlety between these words indicates that of relationship, that there is love between one and the other, between creator and creation. The adjective reckless is used. Reckless love, what is this? Like, um, I love my team no matter what kind of bad decisions they're making. They traded my favorite player. They're going to be in last place again, but they're my team. Is that reckless love? How about um, I'm dating this girl, and she's really mean to me, and she makes a lot of bad decisions, and she says terrible things about me, but I'm still in love. Is that reckless love? The indication for this is it comes from a phrase in that song where he leaves the 99. And that's where we get to the passage that Arissa read for you. We're looking at the book of Luke, chapter 15. If you brought a Bible with you, there's a table of contents in the front. If you have one of these, we're looking at page 868. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. 
This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus at this point has a very large following of people. And this group of people is very diverse. Men, women, adults, children, rich, poor, religious elite, and riffraff. And the elites are complaining to Jesus, or Jesus overhears them. What are these people doing here? They don't belong here. Jesus, we're the ones who follow your word, who follow the word of God, and who obey God and do the things that God wants us to. Unlike these people, they don't have it together. They have no business being here. We're the compliant ones, and they're just ignorant. Jesus, you should know better. We need to separate from these people. So, Jesus begins in verse 3. He told them the story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Do you remember from kindergarten, preschool, your time um, at home, if your mom and dad read stories to you? Many of those stories were not to entertain you. They weren't just to help you fall asleep at night. They were to offer you a moral, an understanding of something. A, a truth was to be communicated, right? Something about a little engine that could and about a tortoise and a hare. And you were able to figure out, ah, they're trying to teach me something here, a moral of the story. So Jesus tried to communicate truths about the kingdom of God through these stories called parables. And this one starts off talking about a shepherd who was responsible for a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing. And he says, well, what would you do if one of those sheep went missing? Oh, well, it's just one, right? There's still 99 others. Continuing in verse 4. Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Uh, <laughs> no. And when he has found it, will he, joyfully, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. <laughs> Said no one. One out of a hundred? Really? What would I do that for? But Jesus says the right answer is do everything you can to save that sheep. No sheep left behind. That sheep is absolutely worth it. Oh, and by the way, once you find it, come back to town and throw a big party. Really? Okay. And now, the moral of the story. Verse 7. In the same way, Jesus says, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Okay, so this story is not about a shepherd. The story is not about a sheep. This story is about you and me. The story is about people. And when one person repents, which essentially means they turn their life completely around in the right way, back towards God, that is worthy of the, most, of the largest celebration that you can think of. And Jesus is saying, yeah, these people that are following me, 
Yes, they are misbehaving, and there's so much about their life that is a complete and utter mess. But guess what? In the same way that I love you, I love them. Their value is not based on the way that they worship me. They are valued because they are children of God. They have been created and known by me throughout all of history. And yeah, you religious elites, Pharisees, you're mostly getting it right, but you're missing it. You guys are separating. You need to be infiltrating. You need to go after these people and show them God's love for them. The songwriters in this song have chosen a pretty bold phrase, calling God's love reckless. There's been a little bit of controversy over the name of this song. Is God's love really reckless? Is God described as reckless? Is that appropriate to call God reckless? You see, words fall short. And in, in the same way, we try to use our words to describe who God is, right? Let's say you're in a relationship and you've been dating for a while or you've been married for many years and you're trying to communicate to your spouse, your loved one, in new and fresh ways how much you love them. Maybe you've gone on the same date to the same exact restaurant for for 30 years. Like, uh, maybe I need to mix in something new here, right? The way that we speak to God, we try to come up with new and fresh ways to do that. And so the songwriters are doing that here. Creatives, songwriters sometimes push boundaries. So does reckless love adequately describe God or God's love? This story is about a shepherd who leaves 99 to go after one. If you go to the ATM and come out with $101 bills and you walk a few miles back home and you realize after counting your money that you dropped $1 along the way. Would you go back? Would you look for it? Eh, probably not. You still got 99, right? It's not worth it. I might pull a muscle walking back. It's, it's not worth the time. If you shot 100 free throws and you made 99 of them, would you be happy at that? Yeah, that's, that's amazing. If you got a 99 on a chemistry final, heck, if I got a 70 on a chemistry final... <laughs> I'd be doing backflips, right? Why go after that last one? Jesus says 99 is not enough. That one matters. Even if that one just kind of wandered away. Even if that one rebelled, turned their back on God. And even if that one is adversarial. Oof. Even that one is worth it to go back for. The song continues. Reckless love chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. There's no shadow he won't light up. There's no mountain he won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall he won't kick down. There's no lie he won't tear down coming after me. Wow. That's like... Mel Gibson and Liam Neeson chasing down their kid. That's like farm boy Wesley chasing down Princess Buttercup. Sorry, time, uh, that was a reference to an old, old movie. 
But doesn't each one of us want that? Doesn't each one of us in our life want at least one person that thinks that we are so worth it, that we are so valuable, that they would do anything to chase us down? Not because we owe them something, but because we are valuable. We are children of God. Because we're worth it. Everybody deserves to have somebody in their life like that, that would climb mountains, that would break through walls to come after us. And in this way, this is the understanding that you have to have, is that we have a God who chases us down and pursues us like that, recklessly. Now, before you decide who this God is of whom we sing, wait, there's more. Romans 3.23 says this, For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. The song tells us, When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. And then Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. What you and I have to reckon with is the fact that you and I are that lost sheep. That we are all Sinners, we have all strayed, we have all rebelled, walked away. And that each one of us, physically and spiritually, has to face death. That doesn't matter if you're one of the religious elites that thinks that you have it all together, or if you are somebody in this room right now that you said, I'm, I'm not worth it. Why bother? Each one of you has to know that you have a creator who is coming to chase you down, that has left heaven to enter this world to give you life. Colossians 2 says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. This is put in financial terms and monetary terms, right? He has paid it all. If you miss a few payments on your mortgage, guess who's coming after you? Trouble. What if you miss them because you honestly lost your job and things went really south quickly? Or what if you miss a few payments because, yeah, just didn't feel like it? We looked at a house once um, that we were going to buy, and we walked through, and there was like three or four of the kids in there, teenagers. They were a little bit taken aback that we were there. A realtor had called ahead of time. They said, sure, come on in. We walked through, looked at the house, found out later that mom and dad were gone, that the house was underwater, and mom and dad were in Hawaii. They had chosen to stop making their mortgage payments and decided to celebrate. That, well, if we're going to lose our house, we might as well go down having fun. So whether you've missed those payments, even though you've tried to make those payments, or willful disobedience, rebellion, it's the same God coming after you. And he has paid it all. Even if that house has become repossessed and you are on your way out of that house, he is coming after you. He has paid it all for you. And here's the bizarre thing. 
The fancy word for this um, that is called a, the atonement. To atone for means to, to make amends for, right? So there's a, there's a podcast that I listened to this week, and a guy named Stephen J. Anderson talked about his time as a kid when he had a paper route. This is when we used to get our news on pieces of paper. <laughs> a little strange. So he was delivering his papers one day and threw a paper through a window, broke the window. And he had a split second to decide what's he going to do. He's going to like go for it, like run away. <laughs> but he soon realizes, well, I don't really have much of a choice. And it's pretty obvious who threw that paper through the window. So he goes to the door. He apologizes. He's like, I, I want to help pay for this. And he goes home later that night and tells his dad what he had done. He says, Dad, you'd be so proud of me. I did the right thing. I, I, I made amends for my mistake. And his dad said, well, well, how about this? Why not write a note telling the family how sorry you are? Take that note. But let's do this also. Let's get the money ready so that you can pay for this window. And let's make some chocolate chip cookies for this family to, to show them again. I'm so sorry that this has inconvenienced you and that I have made this mistake. Okay. He really learned how to make amends for his sin. 1 Peter 2 tells us, He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. When there is a fracture in that relationship, and amends have to be made, it's usually done by the party who has been offended. But the bizarre thing about God is that he's the offended party, but he's the one who initiated the reconciliation. That, that doesn't make any sense, right? And when exactly did he do this? Did he see us reaching in our pockets, making that first payment back for the house? Nope. Nope. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even before you reached in your pocket to, to make some kind of gesture like, okay, we're going to pay this thing back. Even before you thought to do that, he went to the cross. He initiated the reconciliation. So the atonement can be explained in different ways. It can be explained financially. It can be explained in a relationship. Think of the most intimate relationship that you have or have had. And if there's a betrayal in that relationship or if there's infidelity in that marriage relationship, is there any way possible to restore that relationship? It doesn't seem easy. It seems hardly possible. And see, God understands the other side of it. You see, the nation of Israel, God described multiple times as, like, as, as a spouse, as his bride, who constantly turned their backs on him. There's a guy in the Old Testament named Hosea, and he was a prophet. And a prophet was somebody who spoke on behalf of God, a message that God had for his people. And sometimes he had the prophets do really strange things. And Hosea is right up there. God says, Hosea, I want you to show my people, how they have betrayed me. So what you're going to do is you're going to marry a woman who is unfaithful. And after you get married to her, she's going to continue to be 
unfaithful, and you are going to stay married. That sounds like a terrible job description, doesn't it? And sure enough, Hosea is in that relationship with his wife, who's completely unfaithful. And God has felt the pain of that betrayal, that broken relationship. What can you do in that situation? Is it possible to reconcile? What do I have to say? What do I have to do to show my contrition, my sorrow? Is there some kind of act that I can do to prove that I'm, I'm so sorry? In your life, is there some relationship that you have had with a friend, a family member, a child, a parent, a spouse, that you would pay anything to restore that relationship for? The song continues. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. Colossians 1 explains it. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Reconciliation is possible. And God has initiated that reconciliation. And that's not all. What would you pay for a restored relationship with a friend? What would you pay for a restored relationship with your creator? $50,000? $100,000? A life of indentured servitude? The song continues. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away reflects Ephesians chapter 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. That full reconciliation with your creator that he initiates, how does zero sound? Hmm. So let me get this straight. I've been created uniquely. God loves me. This creator is a, is a God of love. He loves me so much that he went to the cross where he was belittled, mocked, despised, and he offers me forgiveness, reconciliation, and eternal life where all my ugliest moments in life are wiped away. Everything I've said, thought, and done is gone. All right, what's the catch? What's the catch? Is this a, some kind of a scam? Is there something in it for him? Nope. Who is this God that we sing of? It is a God who loves us recklessly. In the eyes of the common person, how else would they describe somebody who has done this for them? Somebody who has risked harm who has risked shame and who has given up their life. To me, it sounds reckless. And words fall short. There's no way to adequately, adequately describe what God has done for us to describe the, the depth at which he loves you. 
And so we try and we worship. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And I started off this morning talking to you about ways that songs trigger memories. This song I heard for the first time about four years ago this month. 2018, I uh, was part of a group that, from my church that uh, took a trip to Mexico, to Mexicali. And uh, we drove the long drive to get down to get there. It was a partnership with Azusa Pacific University that for years and years, until last year, would bring mostly high school students, but others as well, to this dirt field on the outskirts of Mexicali so that in the daytime you could partner with churches and go do some incredible things, um, serving those churches, talking with those kids, vacation Bible schools, things like that. In the mornings and the evening, there would be a speaker, and then there would be a band that played music. And I kid you not, it was three, maybe four songs was their repertoire for the week. That was it. And this was one of those songs. So every morning and every night, reckless love. All right, I get it. We've heard it 17 times already. Because out on that dirt field that is hard and cold... You're sleeping in tents, and it's windy, and the dirt and the sand is blowing in your face. And you get little sleep, and you wake up, and you find out, oh, yes, they have coffee. Thank you, Jesus. And you walk over, and it's the worst coffee you've ever tasted in your life. <laughs> and you've spent your life, or you've spent your week, and the only plumbing being that of a couple dozen porta-potties, which after a few days, smells a bit. And then for me that week, it was a particularly trying time because there was some kind of fracture in my foot, so I had this medical boot on. So I spent the whole time trudging and dragging my leg through the sand into the porta potty day after day. And for our family, we were going through a very hard time. So you can probably pick up on my subtle attitude, right? It was bad. Lots of complaints. And then at one point, the song utters this phrase, you have been so, so good to me. Oh. Well, see, on that trip, for the very first time, and having made a trip like that many, many times, I got to take my own kids. I got to take my two daughters on this trip. And I got to see them worshiping. And I got to see them playing with kids living in very poverty, uh, impoverished situations. And I got to see them put on skits. And I got to see them worship, and I got to see their faith grow. And it also hit me that about 27, 28 years before that, at that very exact spot, I had been as a college student and had camped in the wintertime at this place. And it hit me, wow, decades later, here I am, come full circle, and now I get to show the next generation about a God who loves them deeply. He has been so, so good to me. My song changed that week. This morning for you, are you a lost sheep? Perhaps a, a lost sheep that has just kind of wandered or strayed. 
Or maybe a little more actively, you've rebelled. Maybe even been adversarial towards your creator, to this Jesus. How do you feel this morning knowing that you have a creator that so passionately loves you that he climbs mountains and goes through walls and left heaven because he loves you? How deeply do you grasp that? And that's why in two weeks we celebrate Easter. We jump up and down. We, some of us wear these big dresses and big frilly hats and we have hundreds of donuts out on the yard and um, all sorts of crazy things. We celebrate because there's a Savior who loves us recklessly. Maybe this morning you're somebody like me. You've been a Christian for a while. You've been a follower of Jesus, but your attitude kind of stinks. Or maybe you find yourself in the middle of crisis and you are asking a lot of questions. Why? What is going on? Have you forgotten that he loves you recklessly? Have you forgotten the times that he has been so, so good to you? My encouragement for you this morning is to change your song. Show gratitude. Forgive as you have been forgiven. I'm going to invite the band up on the stage. You're going to have an opportunity this morning to respond in a few different ways. We were talking about senses earlier, and we have communion in the four corners of the room with which you can taste, touch, feel, smell the sacrifice that Jesus made for you on the cross. We have a group of folks that would love to pray for you this morning, whatever crisis that you're in. And then we have music that may stir up emotions. A few of you I know had this opportunity this week, but my family and I went um, to San Diego and we saw a, a worship concert. One of the artists was Chris Tomlin, and we've been listening to him for a good 15 plus years. And there's so many memories and emotions that come from that, from that time in addition to the powerful words of God. And so I got that opportunity to to sit with my wife and my three kids and just to look down that road to acknowledge he's been so, so faithful. He's been so, so good to me. Would you pray with me? This morning, I want you to celebrate. I want you to know more than anything else when you leave this building today that you have a God that has found you. You are not lost. That he loves you deeply. And that you can respond to him and say, yep, I give up. Come get me. And you have a God who has been with you by your side for so, so many years and loves you deeply and is so, so good and has loved you recklessly. And as at the concert was said, there's nothing better than right now the people of God singing the praises of God in the 
presence of God. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.